Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. So glad you could join us this morning. And by the way, if you want to join in the conversation, you can do that as well. 801-331-8113. Of course, I'm saying this morning because that is when this program airs live every weekday morning between 7 and 9 a.m. Mountain Time. However, the podcast is available any old time you want to listen to it. And uh, hopefully, hopefully that's what you're doing. I, You know, I'm so reluctant. After 35 years sitting behind a radio microphone, I had this terrible reluctance to, to give up on the, the, the love of over-the-air radio. And I still think it's a viable thing. Mind you, it's, it's not. I'm not uh, giving its eulogy just yet. But it's also so clear. The technology has shifted the way people listen to the things that they listen to. And while over-the-air radio has its place still and is still a very immediate way of reaching large numbers of people, it's pretty hard to beat something that you can actually access and utilize on your terms according to, you know, your, your, your schedule. Yeah, I'm going to download a podcast. I'll listen to it while I'm working out or while I'm driving to work or whatever. Well, hey, whatever works. We got the bases covered. That's, uh, that's what we do. We're the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Now, I'm going to make you a little bit uncomfortable, or at least uh, some people are going to feel uncomfortable by the time... We get to the bottom of this subject because this has to do with the uh, social justice imperative that has just permeated our society. And not all of it is militant. This is the tough part. There, there are people who are social justice warriors, but they're actually really nice about it. There are some who are not so nice and, you know, that's they make it pretty obvious that, uh, look, I can be as belligerent as I want to. Why? Because I'm a victim and... It's my turn to oppress you. There aren't very many of them, but you know what? What they lack in numbers, they make up for in intensity. Not fun. Rod Dreher, writing for the American Conservative, has an article called Hiding in Plain Sight Will Not Be an Option. Now, this pertains to LGBT++ activism. And it's a reader who wrote to him who said, This is an anecdote about what I will call unwoke intersectionality. And just as a quick aside, intersectionality is that that study of victimhood or more appropriately, it's an ideology of victimhood in which the more places you can show that uh, you are an, a victim in this many ways, the more intersecting lines of victimhood that uh, that are in your life, the more power you're supposed to have over other people. So, you know, someone who is is really well intersected would be a transgender who identifies as a woman, if it's a person of color, and presumably somebody from a, a disadvantaged economic background. I'm probably leaving some stuff out of here, too. Oh, and, and a non-believer. <laughs> I'll just throw that in there. But you get the idea. At the very bottom of the heap, the, the, the stuff we scrape off the bottom of our feet, that would be, well, guys like me. Heterosexual. Christian, white, male. 
In fact, uh, I'm, I'm not upper class. That would just add another level of oppression to me and another reason for, for me to be derided. But, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. There's a lot of reasons people would hate me just just the way I am. One of the things that got me thinking about this is I have a boy who's getting ready to, to go to college. Just got back from uh, serving a mission in Mississippi and Louisiana. Not exactly a foreign mission, but he was Spanish speaking. And it's definitely a big change from life uh, in, in Utah where he has lived all of his life. And as he steps back into his regular life, one of the biggest challenges and opportunities is making the decision of what he'll become. And this is more than just simply choosing, well, how is, how is he going to make a living? It's, it's sorting out the deeper questions. What are the bigger goals of your life? Marriage? Family? Is there even an overarching sense of purpose that will set the course of who he will become? It's pretty overwhelming. And I remember, you know, that similar sense of feeling overwhelmed by the possibilities when I returned from my mission many, many years ago. But there's a script that we're almost expected to follow. And this is a society-wide script. And the one I'm referring to, I mean, come on, this should be familiar to you. It's the one that says, go to college, get a degree or other credentials, get a stable and well-paying job, collect the obligatory symbols of material success, save for retirement, and then run out the clock until you die. That's pretty much how it works. And it's a simplified synopsis, I understand, but that's how a vast majority of people not only live their lives, but also how they measure their progress. And it makes me wonder if maybe we aren't suffering from a little bit of tunnel vision. Now, here's the concern I have for my son. As he enters higher education, he wants to be a pharmacist, and that means a minimum he's looking at another three years of school before he can even get a degree, and then even some more school after that. Now, it can be a valuable experience if you're looking to gain essential technical knowledge in areas like math or science or medicine or law. But the question I have is, is higher education contributing to our overall well-being in terms of cultural, spiritual, ethical and moral understanding? Because the concern I have is that our college and university campuses essentially have been turned into cultural battlegrounds where more emphasis is placed on knowing all 63 gender pronouns then is placed on becoming a decent person. I mean, these were once places where you could get widely divergent ideas and you could thoughtfully discuss them and debate them. But more and more, they're becoming social justice echo chambers where if you bring diversity of thought, you're going to be denounced. You're going to be silenced. You're going to be shouted down. And as a parent, I have some real serious reservations about sending my son into an institution that places so much focus on compliance and uniformity of thought. And I'm especially concerned about uh, an institution that conveys the kind of systemic hatred toward anyone who maintains a sense of right and wrong. I think about Thomas Jefferson's letter to Peter Carr, where he said, state a moral case to a plowman and a professor. The former will decide it as well and often better than the latter because he has not been led astray by artificial rules. Now, here's what I'm getting at. My son spent two years outside of the Utah bubble that he was raised in, and it brought him in contact with individuals from every conceivable walk of life and circumstance. Now, what that means in plain English is he has had the opportunity to work with and he has gained the ability to love people for who they are and not what someone thinks they should be. But when he steps onto a college campus pretty much anywhere in this country. The crusaders of identity politics will see none of these qualities in him. You know what they're going to see? 
They're only going to see whatever label they can use to effectively pigeonhole him for their perceived ideological advantage. Now, does that sound like a healthy environment? And here's the thing. You can, you can say, well, you know, you just mind your own business and that stuff. They'll leave you alone. No, they won't. And that brings us to this article by Rod Dreher. This reader talks about unwoke intersectionality. And apparently Rod had called for alternative libraries at one point. This uh, drag queen story hour now becoming a thing in more than just, you know, some of the more uh, progressive or avant-garde sections of New York. And this individual goes on to, to explain to Rod, he says, look, uh, he, he and Rod redacts a lot of this information because he says, I'm trying to protect him. But he says, this guy and his wife have a large family. They're Catholics. They live in a blue state. They send their kids to Catholic school. Now, they are conservative, but they don't consider themselves to be culture warriors. This is important. They're not the ones out there contending and fighting. They're aware of the crazy culture war things going on in the world, but they've never felt called to get involved with any of it. It doesn't threaten them locally, or so they thought. This is what their, their friend, his friend tells him. He says, Pride Month 2019 was a watershed moment for me. It was when I realized for me and my wife and my children that very soon hiding in plain sight will not be an option. And the writer says, as you already know, but as I'm only beginning to appreciate, small town America is losing its mind as fast as anywhere else. Our institutions, meaning schools, churches, libraries, etc., have either been appropriated as primary instruments of a totalitarian progressive movement or they're swiftly veering toward capitulation. People with jobs in my community, either white or blue collar, mostly work in large, recently woke corporations or in smaller companies that are in the same cultural orbit. Now, we're coming up on break here, so we'll take our break and then we'll come back to this, but what he's pointing out here is something that I think a lot of people are kind of loath to admit. And that is, look, in the big cities, yeah, 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 they got their pride parades. And, you know, there's these, uh, you know, there's there's a bunch of activists that you're likely to find. And that's, you know, that's in a population center. That's to be expected. More people, more possibility of people being activists, more audience for that matter. But in small town America, this is becoming a thing. And we're not just talking about, yeah, well, the town's having its pride parade. I mean, we were talking drag queen story hour coming to your local library or your local library now feels like, hey, it's important that we celebrate LGBT History Month. This is not saying that uh, this stuff should be censored, but when it starts to become an official celebration or official recognition, you better believe it's taking root. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Here's the phone number, 801-331-8113. I'm sharing with you an article from Rod Dreher from the American Conservative. Hiding in plain sight will no longer be an option. Now, I don't want to make you fearful. I'm not trying to make you angry. I am not trying to point you to an enemy and saying, there, there's your foe. Go and slay the foe. But I am pointing out here something that uh, I think a lot of people are loath to consider or to admit and that is that uh, there is no way that you can just sit out and and expect well i'm not going to i'm not going to get involved in this fray um it doesn't matter 
I don't I don't care how good a person you are. The the culture war is looking for you. As my friend Paul uh, Gooch put it, he says, you know, the, the chairs along the sidelines, the chairs along the fence where so many people want to sit, they're being torn down. A choice is being forced on us. And the bigger question I have is, so how should we respond to this? The letter writer who wrote to Rod Dreher says, In Pride Month, I realized that the howling lunatics who celebrate the mutilation of confused children, it's talking about the people who would permanently alter children through sexual reassignment surgery, who's howling, he says, I've always been too busy to get excited about, are now after my own children's minds and hearts and the minds and hearts of all the children in my community. He says, I've been very secure in the knowledge that nobody can fool me or force me into believing lunacy, no matter what. But that's no longer what matters. As my children are heading into adolescence, the brain-eating amoeba of progressive totalitarian ideology is down the street and heading for my front door. And I'm realizing that somehow I have to not only protect them, but arm them and fight with them against this evil. The alternative seems to be to let the amoeba eat. And he says, that's a stark moral choice. Now, I had one friend who says that's a false dichotomy. And maybe there are some other ways to look at this. But I do believe that the the underlying truth here is there's no neutral corner where we can all just kind of wait for this thing to blow over. I think we're we're approaching a time where every person who believes in in right and wrong or who who understands that there is a difference between light and darkness is going to have to make a choice. You're either going to have to suffer for your beliefs by standing for what you believe is right. And I'm talking peacefully. I'm not talking about going out and fighting bare knuckle in the streets. I'm talking just by the way you live your life and refusing to acquiesce when someone comes to you and says, hey, evil's good. Say it with me. At some point, you're going to have to tell them I can't do that. I mean, I'm going to hearken back to some of the old, uh, you know, biblical examples, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Why did they get thrown in the furnace? Because everybody else bowed and they would not. They chose not to. And by the way, just just so we're clear, they weren't doing it to be prideful. There was a very real chance those guys were going to die. They knew that uh, the furnace was being prepared. It was being hotter, being heated hotter than it ever had before. Even in their own words. We believe our God will save us, but if not, at least we are doing what we believe is right. The thought of dying didn't bother them as much as the thought of turning loose of their dearest values in order to gain acceptance from what the crowd was demanding of them, or in this case, what the king was demanding of them. I know that's not a pleasant thought. That's... For most people, that's the kind of thought that makes you go, oh, don't even don't even suggest that kind of a scenario. But I sincerely believe we're reaching a point where pass or play is going to be forced upon us. And when I say play, I mean, you might have to suffer for your beliefs. And if that's not something you're willing to do, I guess uh, now's the time to figure it out. You might as well turn loose of them now. Because that choice is going to be brought to you. And I don't think any one of us is going to get to to avoid it. 
the author here of this letter says what it means for him is something that we're starting to grapple with. He says it's obvious to us that we can't put our kids into public high school when they reach that age, which means homeschooling is going to be our only option. And he says what that will mean for me professionally, I wonder. The identity of a small town person in my profession and the identity of a man at war with the culture on behalf of his family are generally impossible to reconcile. Now, I'm going to ask you in all sincerity, is he overthinking this thing? Because I'm not sure that he is. In fact, I'm going to suggest something that you may consider unthinkable. I believe into the life of every man, woman and child. There comes a moment of decision. Where you have to choose, you have to consciously make the decision. Do I go along with the crowd or is this something that so challenges my sense of right and wrong that I am willing to risk ridicule or shame or being ostracized? I'm willing to part company with polite society rather than go along with what the crowd is doing. For this father, he says, the library really was a flashpoint for me. If the brain-eating amoeba is going to live at the public library from now on, I can't just waltz in with my kids like I always have and just let them roam. Now it's hostile territory. The playing field is fundamentally different from what it was for dissenters like me. And he tells Rod Dreher, your thought that it could be time for a new library for the unwoke, funded and staffed by the unwoke, is the same thought I was having a few hours ago. He says, I'm going to start exploring this concept in my community. It's time to start actually working to build new institutions, having lost the old ones. Which is my fault, he says, as much as anyone else's. We weren't paying attention, so it's our problem to do something about it. By the way, homeschooling is a perfect example of building a parallel institution to one that has been co-opted and, dare I say, corrupted by cultural forces. Now, I'm saying this with the understanding my wife is a public school teacher. She probably would not agree with me on that, and that's that's okay. But peacefully building a parallel institution, I think, is, is a better way than and we're just going to come out. And we're going to go head on and we're going to collide and fight it out in the streets. I think the better way is to just peacefully make that other institution that has been corrupted or co-opted obsolete, at least to you. Somebody else wants to utilize it. Hey, go ahead. I won't interfere with you, but leave me be. And that's the rub. The culture warriors will not leave you be. They will not give you a neutral place to stand. Now, this guy says, the other thing my wife and I say to each other is that we need a mafia. Hmm? Not in the sinister sense. He says, in, in the sense of building ties among people locally who will stand athwart the degradation of the culture with one another. Come what may. We have friends around the world who theoretically make up such a mafia. We're plugged in with conservative institutions, and religious conservatives, and we visit each other quite a bit. But that won't cut it locally. We need to identify people willing to stand athwart the culture in our community. He says the Catholic Church isn't populated by many of those people locally. The evangelical churches are more fertile ground for the countercultural. But whether they're interested in building institutions that are non-sectarian is something that he says he has his doubts about. They're pretty possessive of their adherents' time and resources. Power to them, but he says, as a Catholic, I'm not able to be a part of their parallel universe in any real way. Part of our project will be to see whether we can culturally intersect with evangelicals, Trump voters, etc., 
to the extent of making real progress in taking back space in the community for sanity and spiritual integrity. Now, he tells Rod Dreher, thank you for helping us through your writing to recognize what's going on around us. Although we've somewhat suddenly realized our culture has not just abandoned our value system. We've known that forever, but is now aligning towards its elimination. We still want to respond constructively. He says Benedict type option institution building seems to be the only way to respond constructively and with hope. It's going to be very interesting to see what the next decade holds for our family and our community. And Rod Dreher says, you know, one of the things I'm learning from the work I'm doing now on anti-communist dissidents is how important it is to be willing to be hated for what's true and right and how important it is to find others who share both your beliefs and your willingness to suffer. I'd like to get your thoughts on this. We'll take some calls when we come back. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Let's go to the phone line, 801-331-8113. My friend Sam is standing by in Missouri. Hey, Sam. Hey, good morning to you, Brian. Uh, Since we're going down this road, let's make everybody a little bit more uncomfortable. Let's do it. Yes. um, There's sometimes we have to, one of the things I've always said is sometimes we have to face ourselves and think. And that is, okay, um, the significance of this is that where is your line in the sand? If they get away with this, and they already are getting away with it, while all all of us out there that claim to be I'm not I'm not saying all of us, you know, you, me or you know, whatever, you know, there's some of us that are awake, but there's a lot of people who claim to be and I almost hate to use the term conservative because it's been wore out to mean things that it doesn't mean, but I don't know what else to say. It, it becomes a label, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's where I have a problem with uh, with labels. But having said that, um, what point do we draw a line in the sand? Do we draw a line in the sand, say, when they start coming out and saying, it's okay for pedophiles to play with children, and we start having pedophiles in the schools and pedophiles in the libraries, and uh, are we going to allow that to happen? And the the, the thing that really that this all boils down to, and I know, Brian, we want to try to be nice. We want to try to play nice. But there does come a point where after a while you can only play nice so far. And that's the thing. I don't know where that line is. Uh, I, I, uh, I know for myself. Now, I don't have kids, but I know a lot of people who do. And uh, it really worries me for those people that have kids because I don't even think they know what's headed their way. I mean, this is like a giant out-of-control freight train with, say, like 200 cars behind it barreling down the track at breakneck speed with no brakes at all. And um, and it's going to plow right into them. They're not even going to know what hit them. Yeah, it's th- this is a, a challenge that, that I find in my own life because I... Okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna wax uh, a little bit theological here for a moment. As important as you know, uh, man-made laws and politics are, uh, my faith in God trumps that. 
And I feel as, like I, as it should. Yeah, I, I feel like I have a higher accountability to my creator than I do to you know the the laws of the land. Now, having said that, I still try to be a good citizen in the sense that I I don't victimize other people. I don't want to cause trouble for other people. I'll keep my word. I won't take other people's stuff or hurt them. But there, I see a collision coming where the laws of the land are trying to codify things that are absolutely opposed to what I believe are the laws of nature and the and and the, the laws of God and and uh, you know the laws of nature. And so that's that's the question I have too. How do you peacefully make that stand when those who are trying to to change those laws to to have an enforceable um, acceptance of of what they want? are coming after you and demanding, bake the cake. Or, you know, like the guy up in, in British Columbia, you know, perform this intimate bikini wax on me. And, and you know, it's a business that's that's only supposed to have a female clientele. But here's this guy telling these, these poor girls working there that, no, you have to handle my genitalia. And, and if you don't, then we should be able to bring the law to bear to punish you as a bigot. Well, I think where we have to go with this as far as how we handle it and our ability to be nice and all this, and I'm not encouraging violence or anything like that, but Christ even had his limits. And all you need to do to look at that is when he, when his anger boiled over, uh, over the temple being used for tax collectors and uh, that kind of thing. I mean, uh, I mean, he didn't kill anybody, but he sure made a statement when he went and turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple. He didn't want them there. Right. And there, there does come a point when you can't play nice with these people. I don't know where that is. I'm not going to sit here and try to define for everybody where that is. You're going to have to decide. But there is going to come a point where that is going to be the case. And I don't know how to tell you to deal with this. There's, a, there's I know there's some people... Um, who just like to try to drop out of society. I know one guy, a listener to my broadcast, who is a totally undocumented person, and he brought up an interesting thing, for example, uh, Brian, on the issue of the, you know, everybody wants to talk about the, the illegals coming across the border as being undocumented. He says, well, what about me? He says, I'm an American citizen, and I... And I and I'm undocumented. He said, I'm not a citizen legally. He said, because I have absolutely no documentation. But he said, if we're not careful. See, there's so many things we have to be careful about. And conservatives can be, if we want to use that label again, they can be every bit as authoritarian as the other side can. I mean, right. we're in a real mess here. And uh, whether it's that issue, whether it's this issue or whatever, there comes, there comes a point where we're going to have to say absolutely no more. And I don't know where that, uh, I don't know how to, uh, well, I know where it is for me. If I had kids, I wouldn't be putting them in these schools, I'll tell you that. But as far as for everybody else, I don't know where your no more is, but um, yep. we better start figuring that out real quick. Well, and, and I don't want people to get the idea that we're talking, it's only for this issue. This, I think there are many different issues where a person may realize, ah, I don't agree with where society is going on this or even where the laws may be going on this. But yeah. each person individually has to come to that decision of where can I stand and say no more? You know, where can I say that this is this is where I have to say we're parting company? And so far, Brian, what it looks like, 
with the exception of a few of us that are awake out here, most people that would claim to be of faith and be uh, uh, conservatives and even a lot of them Christians are just rolling over and letting the other side just roll right over them. I mean, you don't hear a whole lot of... It seems like the more worse things get, the more of a collective yawn we get from everybody, and it just keeps going and going and going. And my point is, is that... Uh, we're right for the taking. If we're not even willing to stand over the small things, then um, how are we going to stand against the big things? No, that's that's a good point. Well, no. historically, it's always been a pretty small number of people who are willing to stand up and be counted. And and I guess the biggest thing that holds us back is uh, most people uh, have this impression that, well, before things get really bad, something will happen that will wake everybody up. There will be a shock and people go, oh, we can't go there. But it doesn't happen like that. Everything is so incremental that that last change wasn't so much worse than the one before it, but it adds up. And eventually you find yourself so far off course that you're looking around going, how did how did we get here? Well, and let me leave you with this is something to think about, and that is, the churches are now starting to embrace all this stuff, too. So be very, very careful when you go down that road. Just because you go to a church, you better be very, very careful what your church is starting to adopt, too, because eventually it's going to be an extreme remnant as far as even churches that are willing to take a stand. And that's uh, something we're already starting to see. And I'll just leave you with that. Okay. Thanks so much, Sam. Good to hear from you. Bet you. Mm-hmm. you 8- bet. 801-331-8113. By the way, here, I want to I warn you about something else that I consider um, dangerous. And that is making faith in politics as your savior. You know, the primary repository for your for your faith. There's a lot of people doing this, and I, and I don't think they intend to, but there are people who look at Donald Trump and say, he was put here by God to save the republic. You know, there's a part of me that wants to believe that, yes, first of all, I, want to, I, I do believe that, that God values freedom. And I believe that uh, it's the greatest gift he gives us. And I believe that God would want us to be free. And frankly, I believe God can and will save our republic. But I don't think he's going to do it through a politician. I think it's the kind of thing that has to happen when we as a people become humble enough that we turn to God as members of the founding generation did in their time of crisis and we put our trust in him. And right now, I don't see that happening. You know, you can say what you will about the founding generation. Well, you know, for slave owners, I don't know, man. How are they going to get God on their side? Look, we're imperfect, too. I don't know if you noticed, but we have our imperfections, too. People are going to look back on us someday and wonder, how did they tolerate the amount of abortions or, or the perversions and things that they tolerated in our time? We have our blind spots. But the one quality that I think was in greater abundance during America's greatest times was a humility. There's a pride that we have adopted. And unfortunately, it's the pride that comes from we lean on politics as our civic religion. We lean on the arm of the flesh. Those tanks, those those jet fighters. Well, that's the source of our strength. I'm telling you as plainly as I can. God should be the source of our strength. And I'm not saying that you, therefore, better be in Sunday school next week or else. I'm just saying historically, when you look at the times when this nation hung in the balance, particularly during that founding period, where I think really that was 
that was perhaps our greatest test. That's where the people put their trust. And they didn't do it through official government channels, although there were days set aside for fasting and for prayer and for thanksgiving. But as a people, we had the humility to ask God to be our deliverer. I think we're going to have to find that again before anything changes. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. You know, I feel pretty practiced at talking about difficult subjects, and yet this this culture war one can, can be a challenge, even for me. And, and part of it comes down to, I, I want to employ logic, I, I don't want to be just arguing from pure emotion, oh, the fear, the anger, you know, let's be enemy-driven. But when I invoke, you know, hey, it feels like we're on a slippery slope. Of course, that invites people to say, oh, come on, that's a fallacy, the slippery slope. Well, if this happens and this is going to happen, and the next thing you know, cats and dogs will be living together. It's not a good way to build your argument on the slippery slope, but can we at least acknowledge that sometimes the slippery slope is a real thing? Case in point, you know, what was it, what was it even 20 years ago, 10 years ago? The saying was, what two people do in the privacy of their own own home has no impact on you and your family. It's none of your business. And, and the plea there was, just leave us alone. That was the plea of the culture warriors. Well, look at what's happened within the last five years. Drag queen story hour, trans propaganda everywhere, polyamory propaganda, corporate wokeness. I mean, how many of, how many of the uh, new uh, Marvel superheroes... Are, are now incorporating this wokeness. Yeah, we need, a, uh, we need a female character here in what was, you know, a traditionally male role. I mean, I'm not saying it's the end of the world, but it goes from there. Well, why don't we uh, make sure that we put a, a gay storyline in to this particular story? You get the picture. I mean, for, for there being no such thing as a slippery slope, it's looking awfully slippery. And the question that remains is not how do we battle it out in the streets. It's, it's how do you continue to stand for light in a world where darkness is gaining ground and, and claiming that that's the way it has to be because you're not woke if you don't embrace its precepts. And by the way, I'm not saying that treating other people with love and with respect means that you're embracing darkness. Um, okay, let me make something really clear here. Probably should say this more often, but I need to make it really clear. When I talk about the cultural warriors and particularly the really militant LGBT activists, God loves all of them. Even the most militant among them, he loves them. And we should never forget that. I don't know who said it, but the idea that you will never look into the eyes of another human being who is not a beloved child of God. That's a really good rule of thumb to keep in mind. Even when they are vehemently opposed to you or they are violently attacking you or your belief system, he still loves them. 
And at the same time, I believe there's an expectation that we are supposed to stand. There are things we are supposed to uphold. Even if it means that we're going to pay a price for it, even if it means we're going to be hated or scorned or attacked for doing so. Then it becomes a question of, so, so how do you do it? I don't believe returning railing for railing, insult for insult, blow for blow is, is the way that, uh, that we're expected to stand. I think that uh, this is the hardest part of all. How about this? You need to stand for, for light in the face of darkness, but you need to do it with humility and with a meekness that shows where you put your real faith. Not in your fists, not in your gun, not in your politician, not even in the laws of man, but in God. How easy is that to do? I'll just tell you from personal experience, it's not that easy. And it's rare to find people who can do it. Anger is such a marvelous tool to get people fighting. If we can just get you angry at each other, wow. And yet anger destroys liberty. Anger destroys happiness. And you want to talk about a false dichotomy? Well, uh, what are you saying then? You just need to be this milk toast, you know, pushover pacifist? No, I'm not even suggesting that. I'm suggesting that what you need to have is the kind of strength where you can make your stand peacefully, gracefully, and without violence. Well, what if that means that they throw you in jail? I don't know. Ask Alexander Solzhenitsyn. What did he think of that? I still think one of the most profound things he ever wrote was that to stand for truth is nothing. For truth you must sit in jail. There was another really good uh, article, or actually a good quote here. This is from St. Anthony the Great. Tell me this doesn't describe, or couldn't be used to describe the times we live in. St. Anthony the Great said, A time is coming when men will go mad. And when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, You are mad. You are not like us. Now, I know it's cliche to mention something like this, but uh, Milton Meyer's book, They Thought They Were Free, the Germans, 1933 to 1945, is one of the most remarkable studies. Having talked to actual Germans who lived and, and grew up or were, were present and conscious of what was going on during that period of 1933 to 1945, he interviewed them. He talked with them. How did this happen in this advanced knowledgeable, scientifically, you know, extremely smart society. And some of the answers that they give, if you're paying attention, will shock you because you'll recognize there are very similar attitudes happening here today. And look, it isn't necessarily that, uh, oh, yeah, the Nazis are making a resurgence. Sorry, I think Antifa is totally full of it when they maintain that, uh, oh, yeah, Nazism is on the upswing. I think it's something worse because I think, uh, I think it's, it's more than a political goal. I think there's almost a spiritual goal to subjugate people, to force them to admit or to claim that right is wrong and wrong is right and up is down and so forth. I mean, come on. It's not like some old Testament prophet ever, you know, told us something like this would happen. Right, Isaiah? 
Yeah. But as you read their answers and these Germans who who eventually woke up to the fact that right under their noses, their society had changed, not for the better. Those who expressed concern were told to shut up or they were told that you're you're being reactionary or you're you're just you're making waves where you don't need to be making waves. One of the guys that uh, Milton Meyer interviewed said, you know, for him, the Great Awakening, this guy was a professor. I mean, smart guy. And you would think he had some discussions with some of his co-workers about, hey, isn't it kind of weird, you know, what's going on, the direction we're heading? But he said it really became clear to him the day that he was walking down the road with his five-year-old son, and they passed a guy wearing the Jewish star of David, and that five-year-old boy sneered, Jewish swine. Hearing those words come out of his son's mouth made him realize, holy cow. We have shifted and in a way that is not good and not healthy. But he said everybody was waiting for this this one great shock that would come and then everybody would snap to and go, oh, well, you know, we've got to come to our senses here. This this can't be. But he says that shock never comes. And by the time a majority of people recognize, wow, we are we are off course here. By then it was too dangerous to speak out. And I know the thought to to most of us is just, it's unthinkable that, well, we would never get to that point. So just stow the fears here. Well, I'm not trying to stoke your fears, but I'm trying to ask you to consider. How do we know that? How do we know we would not reach the point where, you know, a person could, could face being ruined for a totally peaceful disagreement? I'm sorry, but I cannot create that wedding cake for you. Jihad! Holy war! And away they go. Look, I don't like it any more than anybody else. We're being forced into a position where you've got to make a choice. And as much as I want to tell you, you know, I know what I know what the choice is that I want to make, but I honestly question, am I strong enough to withstand the kind of peer pressure and community pressure and, and government and societal pressure that's being brought to bear? I hope I am, but I'm absolutely confident of this. If you wait until the moment when that choice is forced upon you, you've waited too long. This is the kind of thing you need to have sussed out ahead of time. And just understand that uh, you're going to have to suffer for your beliefs. Now, here's the good news. A person who suffers for his or her beliefs becomes a source of light to the people around them. And there are people who are looking for that additional illumination. Be a source of light. I'll just leave it at that. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.